Hey everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday, I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, joining me this week is one of the great uh, writers for ATQ, Slurms Matt Court. How you doing? I'm very well. I've been swimming around in the backyard for the last several days and, uh, you know, enjoying the heck out of that. Uh, yeah, the weather's, um, outside of this podcast, uh, has been a little hit or miss, um, yeah, go figure the month of June. This is a great opportunity for me to get out of the rain for a while. Yeah, no, um, the, uh, uh, speaking of getting out of the rain, the, the, the track and field, uh, nationals was held at Hayward field, uh, this last week, uh, wrapped up on Saturday. Um, the Oregon uh, men and women, uh, sent, I think a combined 23, uh, kids from out their dorms right over to Hayward field to compete. Uh, how'd they do? Well, they did, uh, okay. Uh, the, I think the, the biggest disappointment, if you will, in, the meet was Michael Williams's finish in the men's hundred. He came into that race with the best collegiate time of the year and was unable. And, and, and he also had the best time in the semifinals uh, of, of the, this meet and then got to the final and came in, I think ninth uh, in that race. So that was a little bit, bit disappointing. And the thing about, these track and field meets, particularly the NCAA championships, is you have to come at it one of two ways. You either have to have a lot of athletes involved that do pretty well, maybe fourth or third in some things, and and a couple of people have a surprise finish. Or you have to come in with a smaller number of very elite athletes who are able to go out and win or come in second in whatever their field of endeavor is. Oregon, probably on the women's side, not so much on the men's side, had enough athletes to do some damage, and, and the women actually ended up, uh, ended up doing okay in uh, finishing, uh, finishing the meet in 11th overall, and they were only two points out of a top 10 finish. But they didn't get uh, points in a lot of the events that they participated in. They, they participated in, but got no points out of the 200, the 1500, uh, the steeplechase, the 400 hurdles. Uh, and, um, and so you can't, you cannot send athletes in that, that don't score if you're going to do well in the meet overall. And if you look at the Florida won both the men's and the women's uh, championships this time around, they went in and had high level performances from the athletes that they sent there. And that's, that's what it takes. They had a small, smaller numbers, generally more than the men did certainly for, for the ducks, but they had high level performances from their athletes. And that's, you got to have one of those two things. You either, you got to have a lot of kids that do pretty well, or you've got to have fewer kids, but who do really well. And Oregon didn't have either of those things. Um, couldn't make either of those things happen uh, in Eugene. It was great to have it there. It was a wonderful so- showcase, obviously, for the university and for the track program and, and for the, the new renovated Hayward Field. Uh, it's just unfortunate there wasn't a little bit better performance from uh, some of the ducks uh, on the track and in the field. Yeah, it's a little puzzling. You know, it's 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 hard to figure out 
You know, it's not like they're familiar, unfamiliar with the circumstances. It's not like they're jet lagged, you know, it's right. not like they lacked for motivation. Um, you know, and there's a lot of events in which, you know, kids were making headlines, you know, the four by a hundred team failed mm-hmm. to qualify. And that was like, I was right. really looking forward to watching that race. Um, you know, uh, the just sort of a surprise, you know, I, I, I feel, um, the, uh, and I don't have a good explanation for it. You know, um, uh, it, it's not like Oregon's going to tear down their track and field program anytime soon. You know, I don't think this has any sort of like long-term repercussions, but like, you know, uh, the, the pack, the pack 12, uh, is a fairly strong conference in terms of track and field. Um, but like the, the entire pack 12, you know, was barely represented, you right. know, it, it, you know, here, uh, it really sort of feels like the SEC in particular is, is just sort of, just sort of starting to eclipse, um, you know, other conferences here. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, the thing that really sort of astonished me, like every, every heat that I was watching, it was, you know, like half the field was SEC. Um, and, uh, right. you know, th- th- there are some structural advantages, you know, that Southern athletes, you know, tend to enjoy, um, you know, uh, uh, it, but you know, the, 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 West coast generally represents itself pretty well in Olympic sports. And this, you know, sort of, I have to say sort of a black eye for the entire West coast. Like, um, you know, we just saw, you know, extraordinarily few, even from like traditional powers that you would expect, like the, you know, the Southern California schools, mm-hmm. um, yeah, for the uh, women, Arizona state came in, uh, had the best finish of any PAC 12 school mm-hmm. uh, and got all their points. I get 28 points, finished in eighth, got all their points from three events. Yeah. No, nothing in any of the sprints, any of the distances, uh, any of the relays. So there, there was, there is a, a disconnect there from what has traditionally been a pretty good track and field conference. Generally you had been not, not all the way down perhaps, but you know, the two or three or four programs really are good. And have been good traditionally, and that didn't show up at all uh, in twenty twenty two. Yeah, it's a, you know it, it is a bit of a surprise, you know. Uh, well, it's a bit of a surprise that it happened with, you know, Oregon had a down performance, but then so did USC, mm-hmm. um, and you know, is there a connection there, or is that just coincidence? You know, who knows? Um, but like. It, you know, it was just it was just not a good showing for the Pac-12, the national competition, and, and it was being held in, you know, Pac-12 territory. Yes. Um, you know, it was an opportunity to really showcase, you know, West Coast, you know, talent in which in an event in which there's zero competition. Right. Like there's the only thing that the sporting the college sporting world is looking at right now is 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 track and field. And, and you know, it was kind of a black eye for the West Coast. Yeah. Very, very unfortunate result. All right, uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some products. Well, the uh, mayor of Seattle, uh, <laughs> and also apparently the mayor of Miami, uh, yes, Peyton Pritchard. I, heard, I have heard a rumor about that. Uh, does not appear to be extending his governing streak to uh, uh, Oakland. Uh, the Peyton Pritchard to the Boston Celtics, uh, uh, great first game. Uh, the rest of the series not been so great. Yeah, he think? hasn't, he hasn't been playing much. He's, um, 
coming he's coming off the bench and is um, you know not doesn't have if if you're playing 12 minutes in an NBA game coming off the bench um, you have to be ready to make an opportunity if you you know your time is going to be short you have to be ready to get in there and he just hasn't had that that mindset I mean, he might have that mindset but he hasn't had success. Uh, in changing the course of these games. And you, you look at the, the stories that have been written about him, it's all about the three great guys from the Celtics against the three great guys from the Warriors. Um, and, and so it's not, you know, so-and-so comes off the bench and, you know, lights a fire under whoever. So, so far, um, he hasn't had that, that spark when he gets in. But hopefully, I mean, there are other, there are still games to be played. Uh, as we're recording this, the, the, series is two to two with a game that started at well is being played right now as a matter of fact and uh you know hopefully he will have an opportunity to make a, di- a difference for the celtics before the end uh on the uh women's side uh oregon's got three pro ducks uh headliners gotta be sprina uh unescu um she uh the first part of her season was well she was coming off of her injury um was not great um Mm -hmm. uh, at all but like this june um she's just really exploded um two triple doubles uh she's the uh, first player in wnba history to record uh 25 plus points eight plus rebounds eight plus assists while shooting 90 percent field goals uh in a game which like 90 percent field goals in a game (laughs) excuse me you know that's crazy (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I can't do that playing horse. Um, no, w- <laughs> not, without not on, lay, not on layups, me, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I think we all felt it coming that when she was, you know, hundred percent healthy, that she was going to be dominant player. Cause I mean, that's just who she is like. And yeah. so it's, you know, really encouraging to see she's plays uh, for the Liberty uh, in New York. Uh, their next game um, is against the Washington mystics on Thursday. Um, Ruthie. Yeah, I'm really uh, looking he, forward to it. I, I hope that. Good. I was just going to say that um, it, it's exciting to see this kind of performance out of a player in the WNBA. And it's pretty obvious that the teams they're playing against are going to have to start scheming for her somehow because you can't, you can't, you either you have to do one of two things. You have to figure out a way to slow her down to keep the whole team's production down, or you have to figure out how to shut down everybody else on the team and guard uh, her with perhaps one defender. So it's going to be interesting to see if the teams have to come in with different uh, ways to play against her to try to have success. And then uh, uh, Ruthie uh, Hebert, who plays for the Chicago Sky, um, I, I, has got a, a couple of games this week uh, for a Friday against Atlanta, Saturday against Indiana, um, which you can watch on, on Facebook of all things. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched an Oregon state football game on Facebook once. I, and uh, it was at Hawaii at like two in the morning. Oh yeah. Um, I, I suspect that Ruthie's games will be a little more watchable. I hope so. At, at least at a decent time of day. Uh, and Satu Sabali, who plays for the Dallas Wings, uh, has three games this week, um, Wednesday against Las Vegas, Friday against Phoenix, and uh, Sunday against Los Angeles. Um, you know, the the thing that's interesting is I don't 
I don't believe this season any of the Oregon products have played each other yet. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's happening later. Um, I want to see it, man. I want to see that fire. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it's great for Oregon fans to have so many of these top players extending their college careers into the pros and a chance to see them on whatever it is, Facebook, television, wherever they happen to be appearing. But it's it's fantastic for the program, and it's great for the fans to be able to, to see these women continue to excel uh, at the higher level. One of Satu's games is going to be on Amazon Prime, which um, <laughs> that may be a glimpse of the future for uh, um, Oregon as a Pac-12 team, um, or maybe not as a Pac-12 team. Um <laughs> And then uh, there's a few uh, products in in uh, Major League Baseball. Um, Tyler Anderson uh, plays for the Dodgers. Uh, Kyle Garlick plays for the Twins. Cole Irvin plays for the Athletics, and um, and uh, both David Peterson and Jake Reed uh, play for the Mets. Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, baseball's really getting to to swing as we get into summer here. Um, uh, uh, baseball sort of sustains sports fans uh, th- through these like very slow months that we have on the college season. Um, uh, uh, and, and yeah, five products, you know, given that baseball didn't exist at Oregon, what, 10 years ago. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so having... you made, the other amazing thing about, um, you know, the Oregon players that have gone on to the pros is how many of them are pitchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I think that's a result, in a way, of, kind of one of the changes in the in the MLB over the years has been uh, the reliance on a number of relief pitchers. You don't. It, it used to be that you know you listen to some of these like Ken Burns's baseball series, and these guys are pitching complete game, complete game, complete game, complete game. Everybody's doing it. Uh, now the game is a little bit different, where there's a lot more strategy involved in in utilizing your bullpen, and it's not as important to have a dominating starting pitcher. And so it gives a lot of, of other pitchers an opportunity to be in the league who otherwise might not have a chance to break in if a, if a, you have a bullpen with four dominating starters, and all you need perhaps is somebody to close out late in games. Um, but this this new way of doing things is helping get more pitchers into the MLB. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about football. Uh, well, uh, spring practices are over. Fall camp is still uh, several weeks away, um, but I am chugging along on my uh, preview series. Uh, last week, I published an article on Oregon State, and by the time you're listening to this, I will have published my um, article about Utah. Uh, I understand that Utah is a bit of a sore subject for Ducks fans, uh, but we'll try to keep this subject uh, sweet. Um when you were watching Utah last year, uh, Slurms, what did you think about that team? Well, uh, you know, obviously they, it seemed to me anyway, that they came together and improved a lot late in the season. Now this is part of that, of course, is just a personal bias about the fact that they handled Oregon twice uh, in a row. So they looked great and they, they actually dominated in many ways, both of those games. Um, and I thought, you know, I thought that they were um, they were better, much better. I thought defensively 
than I expected them to be. I thought that, for example, when Oregon played them, that we would be able to move the ball on them on a regular, fairly regular basis. And that turned out, of course, not really to be the case. Um, so I, I was interested to read through your article and see uh, some of the changes coming to the, you know, who who is coming back uh, to the team and then some of the new people that are coming in. And it, it's always amazing to me to look at this because you have so many situations where with the, the new rules around the transfer portal, uh, you have lots of players coming in, lots of players going out, and teams trying to figure out how are we going to adjust to having that happen to us. And, and all of a sudden you've got people to replace that two weeks ago you didn't have to replace. So uh, one of the things that struck me about this article, and, and you can uh, fill me in on this, educate me on it, is it seemed to me that there were a number of positions on Utah's team where some players had been lost and they seemed to have pretty thin backup availability, or at least if, if not thin, untested yeah. backups available. Yeah, and that's that is true. Um, and it's sort of you know the way it's just sort of the way things go with Utah. Like Utah has not, even though they have you know now made the conference championship game, um, you know every uh, you know in in several regular seasons, right? Like they they mm-hmm. made in 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 2018, 2019, 2021, and they didn't in 2020, but 2020 was the crazy year. Um, like you, you know, a lot of teams I think would, would really try to be cashing in. Like that's when, you know, it's time to start getting your four stars, right? Like when Washington went on their run with Chris Peterson, um, you know, in 2016 to the, uh, to the college football playoffs um, and, and had a couple of conference championships uh, as well. Like that's, you know, they were really paying that off in 2018, 2019 and 2020 with their recruiting classes, you know, jumped to the top of the pac 12 and, you know, they were, you know, their, their blue chip ratio went over 50%. Um, Utah's, you know, hasn't really done that. Uh, mm-hmm. They, they are pretty much, you know, sticking with the same, you know, getting, getting mid three stars and, uh, and training up walk-ons, you know, getting kids who are coming back, you know, two years older from LDS missions. Um, they mm-hmm. really go through the portal. Like they, you know, almost their entire quarterback room, you know, it, are, are transfers, uh, right. That they played in, in recent memory, right. Like Cam rising, Texas mm-hmm. transfer, Jaquindon Jackson, Texas transfer, Charlie Brewer, Brewer, uh, uh, Baylor transfer, Jake Bentley, South Carolina transfer, um, uh, uh, like, you know, their running back room is almost entirely, you know, transfers the, the secret weapon that they got, um, in terms of getting a third tight end, uh, uh, you know, which is what Andy Ludwig, in my opinion, like the real like transformation of that offense to, so that Ludwig could finally do the stuff that he wants to do was getting a third tight end. Where'd he come from? You know, it wasn't a recruited guy. It was an FCS transfer from San Diego, not San Diego state, the mountain West team, San Diego, the, 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 the big sky team. Um, and, uh, and so forth, uh, you know, up and down the roster, you, you find, you know, it's, you know, it's a pretty unconventionally constructed team. It is not, you know, it's definitely not, you know, 
a, a, a program that is entirely homegrown and they recruit four stars and then two years later they're starters, you know, and then after their third year they go to the NFL. Like that's not, you know, what Utah looks like. And it, it sort of means, you know, uh, this is not exactly a prediction of Utah's demise in 2022, but I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if what we find looking back on the 2021 season with another, with, uh, you know, another year or two of hindsight is that I, I sort of think the stars kind of aligned for them mm-hmm. um, in 2021 in terms of, you know, that they, you know, their quarterback worked out. Um, they, who was, you know, like I said, is, was one of a whole passel of transfers that they had. Um, they, they got a third tight end, um, who could really catch the ball, which like Ludwig needs, you know, and otherwise that guy, I, I don't think much of him as an offensive coordinator. Um, they had a three headed monster at running back who were again, like almost entirely transfers. Um, and, uh, and instead of having to rely on one Zach Moss, um, you know, their offensive line finally clicked, um, which you'd sort of been, you know, the big problem that they had in 2019. Um, they, uh, you, you know, and then on the defense as well, like they, they had to, you know, they, their 2019 defense was so good. And then they all went to the NFL and then in 2020, they had to shove a bunch of very young kids in and that was the COVID year. And, you know, it wasn't great, but they got some experience. And then 2021, they were, you know, they, they managed to get, you know, the benefit of all of that. Well, you know, now there's sort of, you know, a bunch of departures, right? Like they lost both of their um, starting linebackers who are really great. Um, they, you know, they're losing, you know, some, some fairly essential looking players um, from the, um, the defensive line room. And like, it's not obvious how they're going to make those replacements. Um, I mean, it sort of is at linebacker, but like, as, as you were saying, um, you know, there's, even the positions where it's like, okay, I know how they're going to replace that guy. I don't know how they're going to replace the backup because like those guys mm-hmm. don't wind up playing, you know, at Utah, like they, they wind up having, you know, they pretty much play their starters almost all the way through. Um, it's just sort of how they have to do it. And so like every year, you know, that's sort of the thing about the, you know, the way that the media portrays Utah is this, you know, this, this island of stability, this like, you know, rock in a chaotic ocean. And like, because they're, you know, their coaching staff never really changes. Um, but like their roster sort of refreshes itself at a more frequent rate than, than that depiction implies. And, uh, and a lot of teams do so because of like the weird way that they sort of recruit and take transfers and take guys who are, you know, late in life because of missions and, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, walk-ons, um, you know, they, they sort of train up dudes and then they don't play until their senior year, but then they really only get like a year or two out of them. Um, as opposed to, you know, if you recruit a bunch of four stars and you play them as true freshmen, then you get three years out of them and they go to the NFL. Um, The, uh, you know, it's, so again, none of this is really exactly a prediction of like a, you know, Utah's, you know, demise in 2022. But I I do think that the, it, it looks to me like a team that sort of goes through waves. They're like, they put it together like every three years or so. Um, And, and it may be the 2022 is not one of the years that they put it together. Maybe that they do, you know, because these guys are a surprise and they're, you know, one of the things about a surprise, it could always be a good surprise. Um, but like, it's, it's a very different model than I, you know, 
it's a very different model than what I see at Oregon, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, just recruit all the four stars, you know, and five stars right. and, and there'll be a contender every single year. Um, and you know, uh, you know, to, Oregon for a long time was the type of program that took a bunch of mid three stars and trained them up. And then like every couple of years, they'd be in position to compete. Um, right. And and it sort of seems like those days are over. It sort of seems like Oregon switched over to to try to play like the blue bloods play and just get, you know, four stars and compete every single year. And you know what, even though Utah kicked Oregon's butt last year, uh, twice. Um, and so this is going to sound like, you know, maybe a little strange, like I'd much rather be in Oregon's shoes than Utah's shoes. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I, I'd much rather have the sort of stability of like always having, you know, um, high prospect, you know, high ceiling, you know, players every single year. And, you know, it's just a matter of like choosing the right ones to put on the field as opposed to, boy, I really hope that guy works out. Right. And that's one of the the things that, you know, and and that's totally true of Oregon, what their past has been like. Um, you know, even, even in the Kelly years to a large degree, most of the guys were not, the, the skill players were well-known guys like Dat and so forth. I mean, but they, they have depended previously on being able to have a coaching staff that can bring a guy that's got pretty good athletic talent, but maybe didn't, it isn't fully mature or something, uh, and bring that kid to uh, a higher level than you might expect he would be able to achieve based on the number of stars that he earned when he was in high school. So now we're in this other situation where we're getting high quality players at almost every position. And now the question, one of my questions, and I brought this up on the podcast before is this new coaching staff, can they make a four star a lot better? I mean, they're going to get better. Uh, just based on maturity and, and talent development and practicing against better players than they have previously practiced against. But the question is going to be, can they? Can this coaching staff coach up somebody that's already very, very good? And so I'm going to be interested to see how that works out for the new coaching staff. Obviously, the, the previous uh, administration did pretty well at, at bringing guys in and, and coaching them up, even though they were high quality. You have a bunch of guys go to the NFL uh, over the last several years. And that, to me, that is a, a partially at least a reflection on how well they've been coached up in college. I mean, the, the thing that's, the, the thing that happens, and I mean, it's embedded in even the comment that you just made is that like, when you recruit the way that Oregon has now been recruiting for the last five years, it raises your expectations mm-hmm. and it, it's like, okay, you're recruiting like a team that's supposed to be contending every single year. And so therefore the instant a, a single guy doesn't work out or a four-star offensive lineman hits the portal. Um, it's like, oh, the staff is failing, you know, where, whereas like, that's not a standard that you hold any other team to. It's not a standard that you hold Utah to, you know, like, you know, Utah, uh, you know, good for them that, you know, the slow, steady, you know, building process and, you know, like getting kids eventually into a position where they play as seniors and the stars align and they win their first conference championship, you know, in, 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 you know, when they joined the conference 2011. So this, yeah. you know, year 11, you know, like mm-hmm. Witt's been there for 15 years this is the first time he's won the pet, the pac 12. Like how many times has Oregon won the pac 12, you know, like yeah, it's, bunch. 
you know, uh, again, it, you know, it, it sounds it, it's going to sound strange because Utah kicked Oregon's butt in, and as well they might. Um, but like it's, you know, Oregon is simply on, you know, they they have elected a different course. It is one where they have raised expectations. And so fans are fans are sort of more more easily disappointed with Oregon than, than Utah fans are with Utah. And I think you sort of see that from a lot of fan reactions, but like, if you want to look at it objectively, like Oregon is contending more than Utah is because of the nature of recruiting, because that's the nature of football. And it's one year and two games is the way I look at it. You know, sometimes somebody's just better than you are or other factors come in that cause them to win a game. They otherwise might not have. And I'm really not trying to take anything away from Utah at all. They like the, they, you know, when I say stuff like the stars aligned for Utah, it's not, you know, that wasn't, you know, magic. That wasn't, you know, astrology. Uh, you know, they aligned them, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know, made that plan and they executed that plan. And like a hundred percent of the credit, you know, goes to them. I'm just saying that like within, you know, if you're looking at structural factors, a team that plays in Salt Lake City with the talent pool that the state of Utah produces right. versus, you know, Oregon, um, you know, this rainy little state that produces exceptionally little talent, like that's, you know, what differentiates those teams are management choices. And the management choices that Oregon has made has been, we want to, you know, look like a blue blood in our recruiting profile. And, and the result of that has been, you know, lots of conference championships mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and frankly, I, you know, I, I'm happier with it, um, even though expectations get raised. And so therefore, you know, what's the, uh, I forget what it is in, in Latin, but there's an old phrase that, you know, the worst is the best corrupted, you know, mm-hmm. like when, when you have your sights set on a conference championship every year, it's easy to be real mad in December when it doesn't happen. Right. Um, but like, objectively speaking, like you should be pretty happy with the, the, the trajectory that Oregon is on. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's probably the big takeaway that I, I, I had from doing our, our interview with Greg West at, uh, from the no truck stop podcast and, and writing up this article and doing the research for it is that like it, it really made it clear that Utah is, is sort of on the cyclical, you know, path and like, boy, I, I don't like riding those waves. You know, I like, yeah, I, I like the, the, the steady, you know, just, well, I, I know get 25, four stars every year. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it might be um, a little too early to have a formed opinion on this, but to, is there some extent to which you can look at the portal and the, the different way that transfers work today versus how they worked in the past and look at a program like Utah that relies on the, the things that has relied on the things that, that you've already discussed and think that that clever use of the portal could help a team like that um, mm. in a way that it, that some other teams might not be able to use it. I, I don't think that that is true. Um, I don't think that the, I I think that the portal is really useful for paving in potholes. 
Um, and that the way that Utah did some somewhat unique challenges, it's not that unique, basically all the, the teams in, in the state of Utah face this BYU, which I have to study BYU because Oregon's playing them next year. So right. like, I've been, you know, that that's probably a point of comparison that those two schools don't like me making. But it's very clear when I, you know, when I constructed my roster ba- database for Utah and when I constructed my roster database for BYU, I noticed exactly the same problem or problem's not exactly the right word, but like it's a unique recruiting landscape in that Mm -hmm. state because so many kids are going on missions and they recruit a kid in year X and then they don't see that kid until year X plus two, um, where his body might be pretty different. Um, and you know, on the other hand, they tend to have a ton of very playable walk-ons. Um, uh, and you know those are sort of some, some interesting and unique uh, uh, challenges and opportunities um, that they that both of those schools Utah and BYU have to manage. Um, and now, does that mean that they use the portal um, more effectively, or they have some like secret sauce to the portal? No, I don't think so. Because, uh, in my opinion, the only thing the portal's really good at or good for is is paving over potholes. And the unique sort of circumstances that Utah schools face mean that they frequently have potholes, and so they frequently. You know, and so the portal sort of been a godsend to them because that's more asphalt that they can use to mm-hmm. shovel into those potholes. But in terms of like, we'll take your player who sucked at your school and we'll give him the magic Utah treatment right. and turn him into a good player. That isn't. I mean, that does happen sometimes. Like, but like, it's not happening more often with with you know Utah or BYU than other programs. It's because it doesn't really happen. There's really only two positions in which the portal does any sort of magic. One is quarterback where um, we've seen it again and again and again, where like a kid transfers from one program where he just like, he wasn't a good fit for their like scheme or like his skill set didn't really work out. And then like he, he just clicks with the new staff that he transfers to like Mm -hmm. that happens. Um, And, and the other position is defensive line um, because the you know there are there are real differences in the body types that you want for a three down front versus a four down front. Although curiously, Utah is at the nexus for like two of those guys in Xavier Carlton and Gabe Reed. Read, read my article to get more about that. Um, um, but w- with those two exceptions, like everybody else, like you play at your talent level, you just do like the idea that like a school has the secret to unlocking you as a, you know, fantastic developer is just, oh man, give me a break. Like, <laughs> I-, I mean, there are some eccentric coaches who coach poorly and will poison you. Like some of those do exist. Like I, right. like the offensive line coach at the university of Washington, I think is an example of that, but 99% of coaches, like they're all coaching the same stuff and and you're not going to get dramatically better, you know, playing a different school if you are a running back or a linebacker or a safety or a, uh, you know, a tight end. Like, it's just, you know, yeah, um, you might you might be of, better because the players around you are better. Like sure. a, run, a running back might do better just because he's got a better offensive line at school B than he had when he played at school A. 
And then there's always like opportunities for like sometimes kids' bodies transform mm-hmm. over the course of their college in ways that were you wouldn't have predicted that out of high school. So occasionally you'll find kids who are like, you know, you were a, a zero star out of high school for a reason, but like, yeah. oop, you you grew six inches when you turned nineteen, yeah. you know, and now you're an excellent tight end. Like no one could have seen that coming. And there are some schools simply because they're more accommodating to tra- take transfer portal guys, like who might benefit from that. But again, that's sort of like that's really sort of the exception. Um, the 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 anyway. My 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 point being that like no, I don't think that that happens. I think that the portal is just another roster management tool. It's not really a recruiting tool. Um, there is only one thing that determines your 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 talent level, and it's not the aptitude. Uh, through which you use uh, the portal and it's not your attractiveness as a developer to to recruits recruits it does not appear make decisions on that basis um maybe they should like if they were perfectly rational but i'm talking about 17 year olds um there's really only one determinant that that for your overall talent level which is simply how well you recruit out of high school um and, and that has to do with a bunch of stuff probably involving, you know, bags full of money. Um, <laughs> or not today, anyway. It didn't uh, used to be among able to give other anybody, things. Yeah, it didn't used to be able to give them bags full of money, but now you can, apparently. But, so. I mean, that's another thing about Utah. Like, I, I guess this sort of turned into the Utah Trash Talk podcast, which I did not intend it to be, and it's it's not uh, how I hope my words are received. But, like, it's sort of the thing about Utah staff, like, not really changing over all of this time, um, is, like, nobody's trying to poach Utah coaches. Not really. Right. Um, yeah. And and there's a point where you just sort of wonder whether or not those guys, like, are they interested in getting a lot of four stars? Like, are they interested in, in, in making the transformational step that, you know, other programs, um, when they have enjoyed success, have attempted to make? Like, maybe the staff isn't really interested in that. Um, and, you know, dare I say it, they, they might be getting a little complacent. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'd be that, worried if I were, I'm not saying that that is what is happening, but if I were well, a Utah fan, I'd be worried that that is happening. Yeah. Well, and they've had, some, I, I think you can fairly say they've had some success with the methods that they're using. Uh, and maybe they see that as, as good as they need to be or better than they thought they could be or something like that to the point where they don't feel like they have to go out of their way to get higher level players. But you know, it, it's it's an old aphorism in management. A little bit of success can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like uh, you know, I would be I, I, if 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 I were a Utah fan or I worked in the Utah administration, that would be what I'd be clanging the bell on. Is like, why is no one trying to poach our staff, and why are they not you know gearing over to try to get four stars? Are you guys mm-hmm. letting this get go to your head? Um, yeah, I'd be worried about that. I, again, yes. you know, please don't hear me to be saying that that is definitely what is going on at Utah. But like, I that if I if I had to if if a future version of myself uh, showed up in a DeLorean and said Utah has a big fall off over the next five years, um, how do you think it happened? Mm-hmm. That would be my first guess. Yeah, complacency, basically. Yeah. yeah. And um, and since the reason we talk about other teams is to really talk about Oregon, um, one of the silver linings about, you know, 
okay, so in 2016, Mark, Mark Helfrich was the coach. In 2017, it was Willie Taggart. 2018 to 2021, it was Mario Cristobal. In 2022, it's Dan Lanning. So that's 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Seven years, they've had four coaches, five coaches, yeah, four, four coaches. Yeah. Uh, that's way more turnover than Oregon is um, you know, had over the last 20 years. Right. Yes. Or the, you know, the, 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 the 20, 30 years prior to that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think anybody's worried about complacency in Eugene, right? Like that's yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get complacent when you're changing your head coach every few years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, again, it's sort of a different path that, right. you know, Oregon and Utah. Well, and also, you know, as, as much as we hate it, our coaches, our head coaches were poached. Uh, and and not just the head coaches, other coaches as well have been poached. Right. So they must be doing. They must have been doing something right while they were. I mean, here. I tend to. Th- I I and I think most people who work in the there's like an ancillary field to to in college football that sort of tracks coaches and sort of like connects assistant coaches with schools to try to get mm-hmm. them their next job, mm-hmm. like. Uh, and they're an interesting group of people to follow on Twitter. And, but anyway, um, they're, th- those guys all believe, um, and I think they're probably right, that it's a pretty healthy sign to turn over a, a good chunk of your staff on a yearly mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. It means that they're in demand. And, yes. um, a- and you know, having a position coach um, who really wants to camp out in one spot for a long time and never climbed the ladder. Like you kind of look side eye, you know, at that kind of guy. You're just like, where's your ambition, bro? Um, right. Uh, and, and like, you know, uh, we, we, again, I do not intend to talk shit about, um, Utah, but I will talk shit about Stanford, um, which I wrote an article two, two weeks ago. And like, that's another, I mean, that was something Jabril Taha, the, the, the guy that we interviewed who, um, writes for the Stanford daily is very sharp kid. Um, He's a Stanford student, so I get to call him a kid. Um, in fact, he he made a joke. Uh, um, he was in the booth for the the uh, Utah versus Stanford game when Utah was killing him on a Friday night, and he was in the booth. and And the the other person in the booth turns to him and says, uh, "You know, so do you have anything better to do on a Friday night?" It's like you know, Stanford student. Of course, he doesn't. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, we talk about a complacent coaching staff, right? Like, right. You know, and, and that was one of the comments that, um, our guest Jabril, um, made was that like, it is worrying that no one has tried to poach a coach from Stanford. You know, you know, the last one was 2018 when Mike Bloomberg Mm -hmm. went to rice, which by the way, destroyed their offensive line. Um, and, and it's like, you know, so I, I guess if I were a Utah fan, I'd be looking over at Palo Alto and being I saying to myself, like David Shaw ran this conference for a, a stretch there, mm-hmm. yeah, and now he doesn't, and I sure don't want my program to go down that path. Exactly. Hmm. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, uh, it's been good talking to you, Slurms. Uh, yep. Is there anything? A lot of fun. Uh, uh, you're you're publishing an article this week uh, on some of the products that we've talked about, right? Yeah, I'm going to come up with uh, what's happening with all these folks who are uh, carrying the Oregon banner into professional sports and uh, keeping us all uh, interested in athletics uh, in the off season. Yes, exactly. Um, which is sometimes gets a little tenuous. <laughs> uh, all right, thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you next week.